and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and coming up this month, The Ripper returns, well-met progress and it's pay-to-play for young artists. We also have an exclusive interview with the wonderful soprano, Elizabeth Llewellyn. Now, I'm not joined in the Chapel FM studio by my guests this month. Uh, due to scheduling, we are in the OperaCast kitchen, otherwise known as my kitchen. Um, <laughs> For the first time in a long time, it's hello to Lorna James. Hello, it's lovely to be back. Thank you for coming. Uh, and on the other side of the table, it's Chris Pelly. Hello, Chris. Hello there. Good to see you again. Um, now, we have a packed schedule as always, so I'm going to kick off with item number one, which is the shortlist for this year's International Opera Awards. Uh, the awards, which celebrate the very best from opera all around the world, will take place on the 4th of May at Sadler's Wells. And if you can't attend the awards, never fear, we will have a special OperaCast Extra episode going behind the scenes all day at the awards in May. Uh, we'll be talking to the judges, we'll be talking to the nominees, we'll be seeing what people are wearing on the red carpet. It's going to be very Oscar. It's going to be very E! Entertainment television. Um, so I can't wait. So if you can't make it to the awards at Sadler's Wells, we've got it covered on OperaCast. Um, I've picked out a few of the nominees here. Uh, Welsh National Opera nominated for Best Chorus, Edward Gardner Best Conductor, uh, Birmingham Opera, Blackheath and Opera North all uh, nominated in the Education and Outreach category, so the, the Brits well represented on that front. Uh, Il Segreto di Susanna and Ireland at Holland Park up for new production, Royal Opera House Best Company and a shout out to Bampton Opera recognised in the Rediscovered Work category. Uh, Lorna, anything in there you think worthy of mention or anything that was that was missed? Um, I with with my kind of uh, equal opportunities hat on. I was I was particularly interested to look through it. Um, there's a pleasing amount of, of female names in there, especially in the director category. That was really encouraging, and a couple of, a couple of female conductors, I think, which is um, really lovely. Although we were discussing this on the way here, Chris and I, and it's um, when you can stop saying that that's a lovely thing. That's really when we've made the progress we want to be making. But that was a, a real highlight for me, just to see that there was a um, almost a, a good balance of genders in a couple of quite key categories there. There is one award that you can uh, vote for at home, which is the Audience Award. Uh, we've got the likes of Cecilia Bartley, Jamie Barton, Jonas Kaufman, Karita Matilla, Anna Natrebko and Bryn Turfel in that one. So head over to operawards.org to vote in that. It is new season announcement time. Uh, the Metropolitan Opera, first off, they've announced their 2020 to 21 season. Uh, picking out a few highlights in there, there will be three debuts um, from three of the finest uh, directors around Barry Kosky, Ivo Van Hove, and Simon McBurney all making their Metropolitan Opera debuts. Uh, Kosky will be uh, directing a new production of The Fiery Angel. Simon McBurney's Magic Flute, seen many times at ENO, will be coming to the Met. And Ivo Van Hove, um, one of the world's most celebrated theatre directors, will be making his Met debut with a new Don Giovanni, uh, with Gerald Finley as Leporello. And then halfway through the run, he'll be playing <laughs> Don Giovanni. I love that. <laughs> What I a multi-talented that. man. I know, I love that a lot. And do uh, make sure to go back in the Uppercast archive to hear our interview with Gerald. I want to see the production where he does both. Both, yeah. That's what we, <laughs> we want. When I first read it, I thought he's playing Leporello and Don Giovanni. What production is this? What a twist. But no, sadly. But he's showing his versatility. He'll be, he'll be swapping halfway through. Um, there'll be 22 Sunday performances. Um, for years, I've been saying Sunday is is the new time to, to put on shows. Um, no one believes me, but the Met, thankfully, are listening to me. <laughs> They've 20, heard. 22 yeah. Sunday performances, um, 10 cinema broadcasts across the season. And I was astounded to learn that, that in the Met's history of cinema broadcasts over 15 years, they've sold 28.7 million tickets which sounds like just an extraordinary that amount of people. That is an extraordinary amount of tickets. Yeah. That's, yeah. I, I mean, Chris, do you, do you enjoy going to the cinema to... To see opera? I do, yeah. I've seen some really great productions in the cinema. Um, I think it's 
it's it's never the same watching it in the cinema as it is watching it live in the theatre. Um, just because there's, I don't know, some something about the magic of live performance is lost in the in the sort of translation. But it, it's you know, it's damn close, and yeah. and the the kind of the sound uh, equipment that they have in in cinemas obviously is you know, is is good enough to to give you a really great sense of the the the, the sound in the live experience, um, and it's just really really nice to be able to see productions that you just wouldn't be able to see because you know. They're I can't in fly New York. To, I can't fly to New York, <laughs> yeah, every season. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think cinema broadcasts are, are fantastic. Yeah, it's great to see so many. Yeah, I mean, I, I've enjoyed a number from the Met and the Royal Opera House, but they do seem to be getting more expensive. I was looking to go and see Agrippina next week with Joyce Donato, fantastic production. Um, it's like 25 quid a ticket mm. to go to the cinema. Yeah. Mm. It's not really spreading opera to... Well, yeah, it's kind know, of what new... price do you put on that magic of the theatre that Chris was just talking mm. about? What How... What... Do you have to cut off the ticket price? What, what is that kind of, um, you know, that, that frisson of energy? <laughs> exactly. What is that? We both went French. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, what is that? How much is that worth? How do you even start to quantify that? Um, because then at the end of the day, as we'll come on to later, um, opera is expensive. So you've got to get the money back somewhere, right? Yeah. 28.7 million tickets. They've, they've probably made a few bob on these. <laughs> More than a tenner, I reckon. Um, over the past 15 years or so. Well, uh, that's an interesting thought i i don't know because i i was i think we're coming on to um ticket prices and subsidies later aren't we and reading up um on that subject a lot of people were saying that the s- cinema broadcasts are used as a kind of loss leader to yeah. get people in yeah so i don't know if they do actually make a profit on well on what's it, interesting from certainly from the mets experience is that a lot of people who live outside of that sort of new york area who perhaps in philadelphia or sort of i was going to say neighboring cities <laughs> the usa is a big country so neighboring is a bit broader than the uk but people that would come into the met they're finding actually they're losing a lot of audiences to the met mm. screenings right. yeah. um, and i don't think enough work has been done yet in the uk to see what what's kind of being done there in terms of the screenings and whatnot. Um, but there's this you know, balance between, uh, uh, is cinema a new income stream mm. or is it audience development? Yeah. Do they need to have sort of geographic protection? So you yeah. can only broadcast World <laughs> Opera House productions. Outside of 50 mile yeah. radius, yeah. outside London yeah. or whatever. I mean, so, North as, of yeah, Newcastle. As you said, yeah. Chris, there are very, I do know the odd person that will fly to go and see the Met. It's fair to say they're outside of my income bracket, these honest, sorts of people. If, but if I had the time and money, I probably, I probably would. would. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but second best, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not a bad one. Uh, so you can go and see that, uh, I say that Don Giovanni with Finley. I'm not sure if he's Leporello or Giovanni, but that's one of the 10 cinema broadcasts next year, as is Simon McBurney's Magic Flute. I said we've got a lot of new season announcements. Moving on to Welsh National Opera, coming up in 20 to 21. Uh, they've got Jennifer, Barbara Seville, Faust, Rosencavalier, Travatore. Uh, and the, perhaps the most interesting announcement of the new season will be a new work called Migrations. Uh, so David Pountney has been working with five different writers to tell six different stories on the theme of migration. Uh, will Todd is composing and David Pountney directing. Um, a really interesting example here, Lorna, of working with a community of people to tell modern stories yeah um, and actually putting it on that main stage I think is fantastic amazing I think that's just um, that's just fantastic a lot of the time these kind of projects tend to be in you know the kind of Lindbury spaces or the um, you know the, the second hat kind of spaces not that the Lindbury isn't a fantastic theatre but they don't really make it onto main stage they're not kind of deemed uh, to be financially viable or, or enough that they would get enough bums on seats to kind of justify having that in the big space. So that's a real um, 
a real plus and I think I've said on um, previous casts that I'm a, a huge fan of Will Todd I love everything he writes it's, it's fantastic music and so I'm really really keen to hear that especially because Opera North are working with him this season as well so he's I'm loving how much uh, exposure and work he's getting I'm kind of um, very much team Will Todd on that so yeah really interested in that in that project I'd love to see how that how that goes and hopefully it will gain the interest which means that more people are brave enough to put those kind of things on on their main stages hmm. I, I think as you know we've talked about before this idea of relevance is, is is so important nowadays how can opera be relevant um and i think it's having something like this in the mix of a season which doesn't overpower but it does mm. provide people with something which is telling stories of i can say normal people today but you yeah. know it is actually bringing something very relevant to the to the main stage it is, yeah, and I think um, people love to go on about how irrelevant and out of date opera is, and I think um, I have my own, obviously, my own feelings about those kind of conversations. But these kind of projects really do. I mean, if if opera is is going to move with the times, we need more of this. So, um, yeah, ten out of ten for WNO on that. Yeah, and and it's I, I just think it's great to see new new works yeah. being performed because so often, uh, you know. The, the the season announcement is just oh yes you're doing all of those operas again. Well, the um, Met is what were you saying? Twenty three. Yeah, there's twenty three operas being uh, on this on this the Met's season announcement. One of which is uh, from the twenty first century. century, and three of which are from the twentieth century. The rest are all older than that. Classic. Kind of. um, so it, it feels like you know there must be newer operas that that could be performed. And I think it's it's nice to see that. You know, Welsh National Opera, despite doing what a quarter the number of productions are doing about the same number yeah, of, yeah, yeah, exactly. of um, modern modern productions. Yeah. So they're they're also they're doing two twentieth century uh, pieces, aren't they? And then this one new piece, yeah. uh, and Opera North as well um, have announced that um, their season and they're doing um, a new work. Uh, the Jack the Ripper that you mentioned is is a, a new work at Opera North. Yeah. So it's nice to see that, yeah. There's some new works being performed. Coming I think through, we need a lot yeah. more of that. Yeah. And anticipating the next item agenda, <laughs> Opera North have also announced their, their, their new season. So, I keep jumping ahead. I'll no, <laughs> it, it shows how much prep you've done in advance. You've, you've memorised the running order. I'm a big fan. Um, Opera North's new, new season, as Chris mentioned, Jack the Ripper, which first appeared at ENO, is now making its way up to Opera North. Um, there's a revival of Traviata. There's a double bill uh, working with Phoenix Dance Theatre uh, on a new one-act piece, uh, West Side Story Symphonic Dances, so the symphonic dance suite by Leonard Bernstein, um, but actually um, being danced on stage by Phoenix Dance. I'll, I'll be interested to see. I've already seen a lot of people saying, oh, I can't wait to see West Side Story at Opera North. You're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of disappointed people yeah. well, when no one starts singing. Hopefully they won't be disappointed. There, um, there was something came up on my, my uh, Facebook memories um, this morning, which from a few years ago, Opera North shared a letter that they'd received from somebody who came to see Macbeth not realising it was the yes, opera. Yes, I remember that. Um, and they'd written to say how incredible it was and they're now hooked. So, you yeah. know, hopefully people who come expecting West Side Story... Will develop a newfound love for dance. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's going to be in a double bill with, again, a revival of Trouble in Tahiti. Um, they have done a, a double bill with uh, Phoenix Dance recently. Yes, with The Rite of Spring. The Rite of Spring. Which went down incredibly with, uh, well. Jenny Skiki. Jenny Skiki, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting, interesting yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, the, the, the Bernstein double bill makes yeah, more Yeah, slightly more sense. sense. But it's a... It's a, a format that I think they found really worked for them um, hmm. and I'm all for kind of 
cross-art collaborations. So I think that would be a really great evening Definitely. with some perhaps slightly more musical through thoughts than the, than the previous <laughs> pairing. Um, and it's also nice to see, I think you might sort of think of ballet as opera's poor cousin in, in the way it doesn't quite get the same representation and yeah. dance in general. Um, so, you know, Northern Ballet don't have the same kind of audience and recognition as Opera North. Well, um, they, they have bigger audiences. They might not be as well... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Dan dance, I think it was about five years ago for the first time ballet overtook opera in terms of number oh. of audiences. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, perhaps I'm, just, I'm talking out of my own <laughs> uh, preconceptions. Are, I don't think it's just because we're all musical people, but generally <laughs> in, in the city of, of Leeds, Opera North does tend to have a bit more of a... Yeah a recognition of face around the city. I mean, it is double the size in terms of turnover as an organisation. Mm. Um, but I think for another day, actually, that talk about ballet, yeah. I was going to say versus opera, ballet and opera is, is, uh, would actually well, be really interesting. I think it's a very interesting subject because they used the two art forms used to be intrinsically linked and every opera would have ballet in it. And of course, that doesn't happen at all anymore. And when you produce productions of you know, old um, 17th century opera, which is meant to yeah. have great processions and well, whatever in it. And, know, yeah, and just to standard all, dances and things. You, you just end up with the, the director saying, right, how can I make the chorus move around the stage a bit during this chorus of singers who definitely ballet. aren't ballet dancers? No disrespect to opera choruses. It's just not their, not their skill. No. Um, <laughs> and so I've, um, I remember particularly, um, I think it's the Royal Opera House production of the Massenet Cendrillon. Um, there's an extended ballet sequence at the ball in in that uh, opera, and they had at one point just the chorus kind of running round in a oh, circle. No. <laughs> um, it, it worked. It's a good production, um, but yeah, it but is let's interesting. Let's bring opera to, and ballet back together. Yeah, maybe right. <laughs> maybe this is what we should be doing. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and, and you know, with Leeds being the only organisation uh, organisation, Leeds is the only city outside of London to have full time ballet and opera mm. companies. Um, I know it's, it's obviously Phoenix Dance Theatre working with Opera North yeah. on this, but actually more of that cross stuff across art forms is, would be mm. fantastic. Yeah, so yeah. I think, you know, good, good on Opera North for, for putting these things together. Um, then moving into 2021 part of the Opera North season, there'll be a new Carmen um, directed by Edward Dick and the new music director of Opera North, Gary Walker, conducting. Uh, there'll be a revival of Girl of the Golden West and there'll be a new production of Handel's Alcina directed by Tim Albury and conducted by Lawrence Cummings. And this is going to be the first in a cycle of three new operas by Opera North over the coming years, which they're calling the Sustainable Productions. Everything you see on stage will be recycled, reused from the Opera North's prop store or bought um, kind of secondhand from shops around the Yorkshire area. Um, so a really interesting initiative there. In July, we're going to have a special Operacast episode uh, all about uh, environmental sustainability in opera. Um, so we'll be exploring this as the year goes on. Yeah, I think it's a, a thing that Opera North are really, um, I can kind of say this as from the inside as it were, but I think it's a thing that Opera North are really committed to is this um, environmental um, sustainability. There's a lot of um, carbon literacy training going on at Opera North at the moment and it, we're really trying to push the envelope on that. And um, uh, Not Such Quiet Girls, which we did a little while back, was the, the first, I think, of that kind of show. So everything that was in the show, um, as you say, was reused or recycled. Um, but it wasn't um, really it was mentioned in the literature, but it wasn't shouted from the rooftops. It was very much like, oh, and by the way, everything that you just saw, um, which I think possibly had more of an impact. I think it kind of spurred them forward to do it on a bigger scale. Yeah, well, I, I was surprised that this was so far down the, the press release. I'm, yeah, well, yeah. given the role with Operacast, I do tend to read all of press yeah. releases. Um, but yeah, what, I mean, I'm sure when the new production comes around, they'll shout about it a bit more, but they were being quite quiet about it. And, well, yeah. you know. It sounds to me almost, it, 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 it could just be a sort of cost-saving 
plan that they've gone, how can we spin and this into a marketing thing? <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to reuse all our props. I love but, the cynical uh, approach. Yeah, I mean, I'm very pleased yeah. you said what I was thinking. <laughs> but, yeah. but I say that... I, I think it's a good thing, you know. I'm not saying that as a criticism because it, they do it, have an enormous store of. It ticks a number of boxes. Yeah. It's, it's it's the same yeah. conversation as um, you know members of the chorus doing a lot of roles and covers. It, mm. it simultaneously develops those singers and saves money. So it's you know it can be win-win. Pluralism yeah. is our friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was uh, at Opera House Marjo Figaro last night, and I was looking at the giant uh, windows that that are in that production, yes. thinking that I would actually quite like to borrow those for. A show we're doing in the future, so if they'd like to also share sure, along, sure, sure, you know, yeah. that'd be great. Everybody, um, everybody needs windows. Everybody That's needs one of the main windows. things when you when you want a, a set. I just want a window, huge windows, anyway. and ones that rain can fall down. It's very pretty. It's, very pretty. it's a lovely production by Joe Davies. But anyway, um, and closing the season uh, will be a concert staging of Parsifal. Richard Farns returning to conduct that. Hooray. Yes. Now, Chris, your wife did uh, tweet yesterday. Yes, I, I a sent text her. You sent I her. sent her a text in confidence, which she then replied to Opera And we have we thread have, of um, tweets. <laughs> accidentally retweeted. not realizing she she was copying in every single person that was tagged in their entire thread. So every artist, every conductor, every company that is sort of being collaborated with was tagged in this thing going, oh, look at this picture my husband sent me of Richard Farns with a heart drawn around yeah. him. I had the same one and I thoroughly enjoyed the message. It was a beautiful thing. And we all love Richard Farns, so it's, yeah. you know. So we know what Chris is looking for. Yeah. I just, I was very excited by that because I think that the ring cycle that Opera North uh, produced with Richard Farns conducting is just one of my favourite things that I've ever seen. Just ever, yeah. um, And so I'm very much looking forward to seeing them doing some more Wagner. And sticking with the theme of conducting Richard Farns and Opera North, this year we'll see the return of the Leeds Conducting Competition for the first time in 11 years. The competition which promotes the talents of British conductors will be returning from the 8th to the 12th of September with the final at Leeds Town Hall. Previous winners have included current music director of Opera North, Gary Walker, and Sean Edwards, who we interviewed on OperaCast last year. The main prize is £10,000, as well as concerts on offer for the winning conductor. The jury uh, is comprised of Richard Farns, who we've already mentioned, Tim Walker, Lynn Fletcher, and Colin Metters. Uh, really excited to see this competition return. And um, there are a couple of conducting competitions in London, but again, I think great to have something like this um, up here in the in the north and get a chance to see these real top-level emerging conductors mm. here in Leeds. Yeah, and it's uh, the Leeds uh, conductors competition has always been. Um, for a, a sort of a UK competition so it's not open to international applicants and they get sort of questions about that sometimes you know people say you know why can't other people apply for this competition um, but I think it's it's you know it's fair enough to sometimes you want to nurture you know homegrown talent um, so you know I think that's that's an okay thing <laughs> so uh, yeah I'm looking forward to seeing who we'll see in that competition uh, final as we said 12th of September I think tickets are on sale now or very soon so do snap those up before they go and that will do for part one Welcome back to part two of this month's episode. Now, thank you for your feedback to our first OperaCast Extra episode that we released last month, which was an interview with Alison Buchanan of Pegasus Opera talking about ethnic diversity in opera. Please do keep your feedback coming on that episode or any of the OperaCast output. You can send thoughts to info at operacast.co.uk. And if you're so inclined, please leave us a review, preferably a nice one on iTunes. 
In related news, the Arts Council have launched a survey for the classical music sector seeking to better understand not only gender and ethnic diversity, but also social and economic. Now, this is something that's often missed when we're talking about diversity, and I think it'll make for really interesting and useful reading. So do see our Twitter at OperaCastPod for the link to complete the survey. The Arts Council have also released diversity statistics from all the major funded organisations for the past year, with each organisation getting a mark for their progress and becoming more diverse. Um, now, I'm all for trying to monitor these things. However, I feel as though kind of an arbitrary grade does seem a little bit simplistic. Yeah. <laughs> However, like has... when you buy a fridge. <laughs> Energy rating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it has been interesting to look at how the opera companies have fared, um, however. Uh, opera North, English National Opera, English Touring and Royal Opera House were all marked as Met, so they've kind of lived up to what the Arts Council was hoping for. Um, however, British Youth Opera was one of the few organisations uh, in that uh, uh, study to have uh, received a not Met rating. Um, so uh, not not good news. For, that's, for... that's quite troubling because if you haven't got the... We, I, you've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, if you haven't got the young talent coming up the sort mm. of, you know, up the ladder, then the big companies aren't going to have the, the people to, to the draw on. To yeah. draw on yeah. Um, yeah. And I think what's concerning <laughs> is that um, this is obviously something that is, is taking into account, yes, who you're working with, but it's, it's the steps that you're taking, it's all those mm. sorts of things. And to, to be sort of not met is, yeah. is, is mm. a little bit, bit troubling. So I, mean, I hope we can maybe talk to British Youth Opera at a, a later occasion about this. I mean, they're, they're not the only organisation, uh, you know, by all means, um, but with our opera hats on, they are the ones that we've, we've picked out. Another one that was not met, which really struck me, was the, the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Again, troubling to see programmes, particularly for, for young artists, young musicians, that are, are, are not kind of making necessary steps and going, going the right way to, to increase the diversity of those they, they work with. Um, now, Chris, opera is, is still largely reliant on, on Arts Council funding. Um, are we in danger at all of having to hold ourselves to these kind of rather arbitrary gradings in, in pursuit of funding? Well, yeah, gradings and, and that sort of thing are always a bit of a double-edged sword because you can end up kind of working towards the, you know, the assessment rather than actually making progress. Um, I kind of, I feel like lots of people do studies and, and kind of, you know, there's lots of statistics gathering and, um, you know, surveys, but there doesn't seem to be very much action taken. And I, I sort of, I get to the point where I think, can we, can we just stop taking surveys and actually do something? Um, and I do find it particularly troubling if, if, for example, British Youth Opera is f deemed to be not meeting the requirements um, because that's the action we need to be taking, is we need to be providing opportunities for young artists um, to get the training that they need to reach the roles in the, in the bigger houses. Um, so, yeah, that, that is concerning. Mm. <coughs> Now, Lorna, the argument that some people have made, and I don't think unfairly, uh, is that these diversity targets sometimes are being set and reached to appease funders. So companies can kind of tick a box, as you said earlier with the new works, you know, often tick a box what they're doing off the main stage so they can get on with doing what they've always done and what they want yeah. to do in, in the main stage work. And this is certainly an argument that Alison made in our, in our OperaCast Extra episode. Um, I mean, do you think this is unfair or in a way... In a way, does it does it matter if we're making kind of companies do some things in different ways? Does it matter if they're just kind of seeing it as something they, they have to be doing? Well, it's a question about means and ends, isn't it? And I think um, diversity is such 
uh, a buzzword at the moment. It's in every um, arts council um, tick box sheet. You know, it's it's absolutely at the forefront of everybody's mind. And I think for some of those people, it's there for the right reasons, and for some of those people, it's it's possibly there for more um, business-minded reasons. And I think that the pluralism is there. It it can be all of these things, but it's a real issue outside of the realms of opera it's a, it's a real issue of um, privilege based on skin color or background or race or any of these things or social standing or whatever it is it's a, it's a real it's such a big issue and i feel like sometimes when we reduce it to kind of statistics and 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 people get lost in ticking those boxes what's fascinating is when you come across a person and you go oh, you're actually properly bedded into this. You're doing this for the for really the right reasons. And I think the people that make me stop and think like that are perhaps a little few and far between sometimes. <laughs> and you think, okay, there's a whole spectrum there though, right? There's, there's um, uh, it's like um, reducing your plastic usage. It's the same thing. We all kind of start maybe by going, yes, look at me, I'm using my reusable coffee cup. And then at some point you go, actually, I feel quite strongly about this. And, and we all have our own... Um, point at which it becomes difficult and goes out of our comfort zone and I think in order to make real progress in any area like this we've got to get to that line where it's outside of our comfort zone and then keep going. And I think the the Arts Council um, they, they have a um, creative case for diversity which I think really kind of it makes the point in the right way which is this is not about well what you know it kind of says this is not about box ticking mm. it's not just about you know getting people on for the sake of it, it's it's actually about improving creativity mm. because if you deny opportunities to a diverse range of people, then you're going to have a less diverse range of creative work being done. Um, so I think at the top level, I, I I kind of I think the the ideas are, are right. You know, mm. I think I think the the right idea is there, um, but yeah, it just perhaps doesn't always. It's not always achieved in every in every it's just facet. Not quite pushed enough. Yeah, I think the Arts Council, absolutely, with their creative case for diversity, are doing the right thing. That's what I mean by the the reasons at the root of it are mm. solid and they are sound. It's not about going. We've got to get more people from diverse backgrounds because that's just a good thing to do. Yeah. Or, it's or about because going, we want them to come and see our shows. Right. Yeah. It, it's about, it's exactly the same thing as women in the boardroom or, you know, that, that kind yeah. of question. It's about inspiring the next generation. It's about somebody looking, going to the theatre and seeing somebody that looks like them or hearing somebody that sounds like them and going, I can do this. It's about not shutting off those opportunities for, for people. Yeah. And um, I, think, I think that, um, you know, if you are... A kind of privileged, you know, middle class white person. As well, I'm. I, I don't know yes, if I can speak for everyone being middle class, but I'm certainly <laughs> middle class, and we're all white. I think you can. It, it can sometimes be difficult to appreciate just how important representation is. Yeah, hugely difficult. Because um, we, we see it all exactly, the time. and we don't. We see it so much. We're so used to seeing it that we don't notice it. Yeah. So we think, oh well. I could. I know I could do that job. I don't need to see someone that I you know, I recognise doing it because I just know that I could do it if I wanted to. But that's just because we're used to seeing people that look like us doing everything. Yeah. Um, and so it's easy to kind of underestimate how important representation is. Yeah, I completely agree. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, again, we say before, we say again, this, you know, this is an issue that, that won't go away. I mean, I'm particularly, you, you may have had enough of, of some surveys, but I'm particularly interested <laughs> to see this this new Arts Council one because I think that issue of, of kind of uh, economics and class, which, you know, we love here in, the, in England, is, is quite yeah. an important one that people don't often think about. But, you know, you know how you, you, you brought up parents' education, your education, uh, you know, I think I'm, we probably won't learn anything new, but if it helps kind of put some stats on what we already think about the industry, I think that'll be, that'll be interesting. I do like a good survey. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think also interesting in, in that report from the Arts Council, and um, they've started to do some surveying of audiences as well. Um, and actually where do audiences come from, uh, who are they, um, very early stages. Um, but it was interesting to see that the music actually has the most diverse audiences among the Arts Council's art forms. Now, of course, that's not just opera or mm. classical music, mm. um, but I thought that was quite interesting. Um, but music also has the oldest audiences mm. as well, yeah. which does not surprise me for opera and classical music. Yeah. Um, so a lot more work to do there, but um, I look forward to seeing uh, what else they, that might kind of come out of these, these surveys and one over the next few years. And I think uh, if, if we want to attract younger audiences, I, I do think new more new works yeah. is important to that as so much as that, yeah. I, you know um there's always kind of <laughs> you know young people who are getting into opera for the first time and haven't seen carmen and haven't seen figaro and they're great works that they should see you know they get the opportunity to see those those works and i think actually seeing more new works and maybe more new works that kind of have more in common with the kind of music that people are used to listening to in their day-to-day -day lives if they're not already used to listening to opera um, you know, that might be... Like Kanye. Yeah, well, exactly. I didn't want to say oh. <laughs> What's next, David? <laughs> I, let me stop you there. Verdi had the best Nebuchadnezzar opera of all time. I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> um, anyway, we'll put that to bed for, for, for one month, I think. Um, our next OperaCast Extra episode will be with you next week, featuring my day going behind the scenes on the Royal Opera's new production of Susanna. And in March, OperaCast Extra will be reporting directly from the Glyndebourne Opera Cup. This is the second iteration of the Glyndebourne Cup. 19 singers have been announced for the semi-finals on the 4th of March, with six going through to the final. Uh, we'll be covering the semi-finals, again going behind the scenes, and the final as well. So if you can't make it to Glyndebourne, uh, do listen to OperaCast Extra in March for all of the uh, gossip and results from this year's Opera Cup. Uh, the winner of the Glyndebourne Cup will receive £15,000 and a guaranteed role with one of the companies represented on the jury. And a congratulations to Alexandra Lowe and Dominic Sedgwick, the only UK representatives in this year's competition. Now, there was an interesting article from the tenor Zach Finkelstein last month uh, looking at young artist programmes in the US. They looked at issues around paying for auditions, the hours and pay offered on most young artist programmes, uh, spoiler alert, often less than the minimum wage and working well over normal working hours, uh, and the rise of paying to participate, essentially paying to fulfil roles that otherwise would be filled by paid singers. Uh, now, these young artist programmes with big opera companies are not quite so familiar in the UK, but some do exist. Uh, one of the notable ones, the Yetta Parker scheme at the uh, Royal Opera House, uh, their artists on that receive a two-year full-time paid contract. Uh, the National Opera Studio, um, there's no costs uh, towards uh, taking part in the programme, but also they offer no cost towards living whilst in London. Um, how it should be said, National Opera Studio, you're not singing roles on main stages. Royal Opera House, Yetta Parker scheme, you, you very much are. Lorna, as a singer, what's the appeal of some of these programmes, particularly those ones that you either have to pay for? I'm thinking those those summer programmes, they seem really popular. You're paying hundreds of pounds to essentially sort of sing a role. Uh, I mean, what, what why, why do singers 
do them? What's why? the appeal? Just why? When, you, when you've had so many years of training, <clears throat> you've been in conservatoire for forever and ever and ever, why do we still see a huge amount of people wanting to essentially pay to do work that, or from the outside, you'd expect to be paid for? It's so tricky. Um, as a young singer, um, there's some really interesting kind of psychological, sociological stuff, I think, at the root of this. But as a young singer, you're kind of catapulted out of college. You... Um, have learnt some things to a, a good level but have not learnt other things to a good level so you kind of for example I came out of college and my languages and my stagecraft and my recitative singing had all kind of like gone through the ceiling at college like from where they were I'd learnt a lot about that but my technique wasn't particularly solid you know because I'd actually had the luxury of having a role at college but what that means is I didn't have a huge amount of time to just be in a practice room concentrating on how I was singing I was instead learning recitative or whatever um so every singer is different in that sense they'll come out with some strengths and some weaknesses but something and I've been involved with a few kind of mentee um um, systems and kind of master classes and those kind of things something that you see time and time again with young singers and the young singers that I work with or am in some way associated with come and ask me about is the business side of of singing. They come out of college and they, for whatever reason, there's a kind of self-worth thing going on and about fighting for your right to be paid according to your talent is a thing that is just not drummed into young singers. And I don't know to what extent, you know, which one comes first and the chicken and the egg as far as the young artist programmes are concerned. It's just something I feel very strongly about because I just don't think it's right. You have gone to college, you've paid a lot of money to improve your skills in a, a particular set. You will then continue to spend a lot of money to improve your skills in the other ways that perhaps college has um, not picked up on whilst you were there. And then you're expected to pay more money to then do the performing, which is the very thing you were there to train to do. Mm. I just don't... And, and I think there's, it's, it's this thing for me between, yes, paying money to study, paying money for opportunities which actually are educational and, ben- and beneficial. Yes. But the... A lot of these programs seem to um, cross a bit of a line, which is actually paying to do work that really should be paid for, or in some some cases, being paying to to you know sing a role or whatnot when those others around you are 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 being paid. And it's what is educational, what is not. I think there's a benefit question, right? Who benefits from this mm. from this transaction? Um, in a college scenario, even the National Opera Studio. Um, you are training, you are paying money, not necessarily in the case of the National Opera Studio, but you're living in London, that's a thing that you have to pay to do, because um, fewer and fewer freelancers live in London these days for that exact reason. Um, you pay to do a thing, you gain the expertise, You, it's a transaction, you are paying money, you are receiving something that is worth that amount of money in return. The National Opera Studio, other than perhaps for being able to get the reputation element of it you know so and so came through our ranks 10 years ago and now look at them obviously that's great for them because it kind of feeds back into people wanting to to go there which is a, a cycle that they want to feed but they don't benefit by you know in, in a kind of um business commercial way right there's no benefit to that singer as opposed to another singer being there or when you kind of move into young artist programs where literally it, it's as you say kind of pay to play 
my question of the benefit then switches. Okay, obviously that singer is getting some great experience and, you know, wouldn't it be lovely if we could go to Tesco and pay with experience? <laughs> um, but we can't. <laughs> um, but the company is gaining a huge amount of benefit from that singer being there, paying them to do a thing, as you say, that um, everybody else that they're sharing the stage with is getting paid to do. And I just, I can't, it's when the benefit switches that I can't, I, I just kind of can't accept it. Is it a, um, a sort of d- demand thing? Are, are there just so many people kind of training, wanting to, to be opera singers, mm. you know, compared to the number of people that are wanting to go to the theatre and watch opera? Well, I, th- I, th- I think undoubtedly there is. There are more singers than there are roles. Mm. But the, the question is, as a company, you know, like, you know I, I run a company here in Leeds, I could choose to, to not pay a lot of the singers because enough people want to do it, I will be able to find someone. Mm. But surely, as an industry, we have to come down and go, you know, look, we're just we're not going to do this sort of mm. practice yeah. anymore. If we can't afford to pay singers, we're not going to do anything. Right, the difference is, I don't have to do this versus it's a good thing for me to do this. It's, it's going beyond that line. It's going beyond that comfort line, again, that we we're talking about with kind of diversity and things. It's going okay, I could totally get away with this, but is that the moral thing to do? No, then maybe I just won't. You know, maybe I will just suck it up and, and, and find the money from elsewhere and pay these singers because they have trained, they are professionals. And uh, you, you create an expectation um, in, in audiences as well. If, if, you, um, if you're not paying people and you're producing productions on that scale without the budget, then audiences will come to expect that. Whereas if, if you say, oh, well, we can't afford to pay X number of people, so we can't have a chorus for this show or something, and then the audience come and they don't see a chorus, and they say, well, why wasn't there a chorus? And you say, well, we couldn't afford a chorus, mm. we couldn't afford to pay a chorus. Then you'll start to have the conversation about the funding, and if the people want it, then they have to put more money into it mm. to get it. Whereas mm. if you say, oh, well, we can't afford it, so we'll just get people to do it for free for the experience, that conversation doesn't happen. Or to to pay people to pay to to do the roles. That's the thing I can't, you know, we can talk, it's a whole other discussion about what kind of level of pay we're talking about for some young artist programmes where, um, like the Yetta Parker, whatever, whatever they're being paid, you know, it is in some ways a salary. We can have conversations about whether that salary actually translates to minimum wage or not, or living wage or whatever. There are various jobs I've done where if I added up the number of hours, you know, But it's that for the individual to decide. That's for their individual life circumstances to be like, can I live on that amount of money? Does my life afford, does this salary afford me the possibility of living the life that I want to live? That's their decision. Okay, there's a legal element about the minimum wage, living wage, and that's perhaps best left untouched in this discussion. But when you're actually paying to do the thing, that just puts it in a whole different sphere for me. And I, I don't think I can ever think that that's right and this isn't unique to opera or you know even classical music i used to i had a job um advertising graduate jobs uh, in the career center at the university of leeds uh, for a brief period after i graduated and they had to have a policy um saying we don't advertise unpaid jobs Mm. because so many companies would just get in touch and say oh will you advertise this oh it's an internship we don't pay and, and they had to actually enact a policy to say, well, no, we're not going to advertise unpaid jobs to mm. our graduates because mm. 
you as a company have to pay people mm. to work for you. And what, yeah. what message are we giving to our graduates exactly. if we say yeah, you yeah. should be applying for these unpaid things? We've mm. trained you for four years, but you're not actually worth paying. Mm. Yeah. It's not. yeah, and we've talked about singers, but you know, still so many internships, unpaid internships with, as you said, fairly large uh, opera yeah. companies or organisations. And it's, it's just continuing this thing that you know, classical music is for people that probably live in London and mm. and can afford to undertake this sort of work. Exactly that. It's the affording to undertake this kind of work kind of thing. You you will always have a conversation with somebody that says, but I can afford to do that and therefore I should have the option of doing that. You know, like a, a person who goes, well, actually, I want to pay to do this role. I want mm. to pay to do this. Mm. And it's going, that is great. I love the fact that that is your situation. But if we're really serious, again, about going back to this diversity mm. question, if we're really, really serious about approaching um, people coming at opera from a completely diverse range of backgrounds, you cannot be giving opportunities to the highest bidder. That's yes, just it, it, not it how it completely narrows the pool. Or you get to, you know, you've got X number of singers at 22 years old, yeah. and then it goes down to the more affluent, you know. Because and then it they're keeps the ones that get the experience. Precisely. They're now the ones yeah. that get heard, and then you get up in a, in a situation 20 years down the line where the only people that are singing main stage roles, main stage lead roles, are the people that 20 years ago had the opportunity to pay to do yeah. it. It's a, exactly a as festival. Alison was saying um, in your discussion with her in the, the little mini episode. Uh, that the people that can afford to do the unpaid work, that have the means to to spend you know periods of their life not earning an income, are the people that are able to maintain their craft as a singer. And, and the people who can't afford that have to take time out of training mm. to find income from somewhere else. And then that is a vicious cycle. And it, mm. you know it's a it's a feedback loop. They then don't develop their talent their craft any further and so they don't they continue not to get opportunities yeah yeah um now a number of smaller companies in the uk either don't pay singers for productions call them education opportunities as we, as we said um, and others offer young artist programs um, alongside paid roles for other singers um, i spoke briefly to the artistic director of waterbury festival guy withers whose festival pays principal performers but has an unpaid young artist program for singers directors and conductors Young artist programs come in all shapes and sizes, um, and they can be for many different types of people. Uh, when we started the festival three years ago, it was important to me that we also had a space to develop uh, emerging artists. Um, me as a singer, originally, when I came out of university at 21, I didn't really understand the the processes of getting better as a, as a singer, developing my skills as a performer, uh, knowing what the real world would be like, and 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 finding the people to mentor me in that that way. And I struggled for four years. I I went and paid for some uh, tuition, paid for some courses, but it always felt like a very difficult thing to access the next next stage, whether that was professional work or whether that was a master's program or it was an opera course or whatever. Um, so part of, and I didn't really see that out there. There's a lot of young artist programs that are connected to opera houses, um, that are really for artists that have finished studying, a more a finishing school, like the Yeti Parker, for instance, or uh, say NOS, those sorts of young artist programs, opera studios. Um, and there were very few courses that were there to sort of help somebody who had the talent and who had the, the willingness and, and the eagerness and the passion to develop their skills and had something unique to say, um, but didn't, you know, didn't know how to open that up, basically. So 
that's how we started because ultimately a lot of our artists that work for us generally are quite young anyway so you might say well all your artists are young well most of them are in their 20s and their 30s yes um, but our program is specifically there to support artists singers but also creatives across the operatic sector um, to get them to that next level to get them from a place of study to a place of becoming an artist. And so what we offer in the programme is quite a broad range of activities, um, of opportunities, of mentorship, uh, of development, uh, that will hopefully allow them uh, through a sort of bespoke uh, uh, programme for, for them individually uh, to get to that next place. Um, and so our programme offers, for singers for instance, yes, opportunities to perform a small role, to do that in an environment that is very uh, professional that they are supported and they understand what that means but also to work in a wider context in a chorus um, you know to have master classes to have a recital opportunity uh, to have development sessions with a singing teacher but also with a uh, a mentor that might be able to talk them through how you write a CV, um, how you might get to the next stage of what you want to do um, and so it's about um, offering them something that they feel that by the end of it they, they um, are I guess much more uh, getting to a place where they're much more whole as an artist, feel like they understand themselves and then maybe can apply for a program or feel like they can actually take the steps to uh, into a career. Um, and of course, we also try to support them financially as well. And uh, the, 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 the program is fully paid for, i.e. they don't pay for anything. Uh, we have a residency as part of it. All our artists come on board and we feed them and we house them at the festival. Um, but also we are conscious of, of the uh, expenses, whether that be of living or, or travel that people might incur whilst they're on the program. So although we can't make provision to pay them, uh, we make sure that people don't lose out at all. And that hopefully allows the program to reach as many people as possible that can access it. I mean, you've mentioned there that you have, as you said, kind of you have artists who uh, uh, perform and make the shows who are who are paid. And then you have the young artists as well, which, as you said, is not a, a paid program. But these are people that do make shows for you. They, you know, sing roles in some of the productions. I mean, how, how do you kind of draw that line as to who's the young artist who who isn't? And how do you, I suppose, kind of just justify that thing of, of some people are paid to sing in a show and some of the people also singing that show are not? Absolutely. And it's a very difficult thing to, to, to try and, uh, I guess, uh, talk about. Uh, it's about how we um, market or not even market, how we sort of um, how we define the, the project that they're being involved with. So normally, uh, oh well, in fact, almost the entirety of our young artist events are free. Um, and so we are making we're not selling them as uh, events to the public that are uh, paid uh, sort of that sort of uh, ticketed or or, uh, or expensive of thing to engage with. Really, they're more about the process for the artist. So this year, our young artist show is Greed by Jonathan Dove. It's a six-minute opera, and um, the focus of that program of that of that project is to allow the artists, not just singers, but also those who are coming on board to learn about producing, learn about conducting, learn about directing, um, for them to be led through a process of working in a professional opera company. Um, to create a show which is then shared with an audience um, and so we have to fund that production uh, obviously we want to do that work we think it's a good work and we want to give them opportunities but we're not making money out of it yeah. but we're losing money out of it so we're doing it for them really um, because but I, su I suppose that's that's your choice as a company though isn't it if I'm an artist making a show whether yeah. the audience pays or not it doesn't it doesn't bother me so it's it's your sort of I suppose decision that that they're putting on a show that then people don't have to 
pay for it. It's not up to the artists. No, of course not. And, and I'm saying that, you know, for the singers, um, I mean, they feedback to us that they aren't getting roles. Uh, they aren't getting opportunities to work in different environments. And so uh, I think if we weren't offering the opportunity to do a small role or to be involved in the chorus, um, then we wouldn't be offering them what they need. Ultimately, singers, when they're developing, uh, the first thing that happens when you come out of college is you work for a professional chorus. Most singers work for Opera Holland Park or Grange or Garsington uh, when they come out of, uni of, of university or they come out of college. And for most people, that's quite a big shock. Um, and often uh, a college environment isn't the best indicator or development place to learn what that's like. So we try and offer an alternative to that, as well as offering them performance opportunities in a role. Uh, and often people's CVs are are uh, are um, uh, made fuller by the fact that being on the programme gives them these opportunities and experiences that then they can then go on and, and uh, uh, I guess, then look for professional opportunities. But to get to that place is very difficult. Um, and so we're trying to offer a programme that offers them what they need and not exploit them at the same time. We don't, you know, it'd be easy for us not to do a programme, you know. Um, it'd be easier for us to say, well, we won't do that. Uh, we're doing it because we believe that the opportunities available and the mentorship that we offer is really key to the development of young artists um, and for them to be able to get to a stage when they can actually access the what they want to. Looking to the future, have you got sort of ambitions of how this programme might uh, develop or, or, or grow and, and how does that kind of go hand in hand with your, your plans for the festival in general? Good question. I think for sure we can do more uh, in that we can do more to reach a larger, more diverse uh, uh, young artists community uh, that we can uh, through developing the program be able to right some of the wrongs or undo some of the prejudices and ingrained um, problems that are in the operatic sector so trying to offer opportunities uh, through the program specifically for artists that would definitely not be able to access it otherwise whether that's financial or whether that's uh, in other ways so I think being able to develop the program to support those who most need it who will most benefit from it would be something that we are continuing to work on. Um, and so I think uh, uh, more voices in terms of what people bring to the program uh, would be something we are also you know, looking to develop in, in the festival itself uh, bringing in a variety of people from all different places to make work and for their voices to be heard um, so that's I think unique in in the program but also in the, the work that we're trying to do. Mm. And, and I suppose why is that I suppose what are the difficulties been in, in enabling that to happen so far? I mean we are a, a company of a certain size and I am the only really core funded person who runs the organization it may be a surprise to many people but I'm sure you understand David running uh, your company that there are very few people who run this full-time uh, and so there's only the best that we can do as a small organization unlike other larger ones can do. Um, so uh, for sure, manpower and time, but also money. I'd love to be able to um, pay fully fund uh, and spend more money on developing artists than I can already, have the time and the and the resources to be able to reach out and go out into the community and, and source people much better than we can already. We are in contact with many institutions around the country. We, we try very hard to try and search and uh, for uh, a, a really large and diverse pool of candidates for our young artist program, but it's very difficult to do. Uh, and so, uh, finding ways to do that better and to invest more money in the program is what I'd love to do. So, thank you very much to Guy for talking to us. Uh, it should be said, you know, um, 
guy was was very happy to kind of come on and talk about it. Um, the schemes that he you know he runs at Water Perry is is, is similar to what other companies do. Yeah. Um, guy was just a very lovely chap in, in agreeing to come and, <laughs> yeah. and and talk to us uh, about it. And I think it was just a timing thing. They happened to have put an advert out that happened to have started a little conversation about this at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know. I, you know, it might have been quite quite strong with Guy there, but it should we're be so. You know, him out. we're not singling him out. He's, he was just very happy to I come can on. See you. You'll be on the Today program one day, you know, interviewing. Um, no, thank you. Um, so this, I mean, so it's a really important discussion. It goes back to that that Arts Council survey about you know, socioeconomic, um, and it is something we need to think. And it's you know to to really talk to talk big. It's, 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 it's as a society, what do we what do we kind of value? Mm. Do we actually really want a diverse bunch of people? coming through and if we do we're going to have to be willing to change how we do things as a sector and actually change the whole kind of funding of how these sorts of things work so you know and i hope that's kind of part of what the arts council is looking for when they think you've met or not met Mm. your your criteria you know are you actually properly putting steps in place that that aren't just ticking boxes but are looking at the wider issues and i think it's it's also about adding value like you said who's getting the benefit Mm. um because, you know, having just talked about sort of graduate jobs and, and, and things like that, um, there are loads of um, companies that take on uh, students doing year in industry placements, um, you know, in all different kind of areas of, of study and different kind of um, companies. And those are paid, you know, it's basically a job that you do for a year mm-hmm. that is just part of your degree, but you get paid for doing that. Um, and I think opera you know, opportunities like that in opera, young artist schemes, and it should be the same. Yeah, you're you're adding mind, value. Yeah. yeah, if you're if you're performing in a production, you're adding value to that production, to that company, so you should be getting paid for that, you know, regardless of whether you're receiving a benefit from, you know, the opportunity, mm. because you are adding value, you should get paid. Yeah. yeah. And if you've got thoughts, experience of these programmes that you'd like to add to the conversation, please do get in touch. Info at operacast.co.uk. Now, earlier this month, I had the supreme pleasure of sitting down with Elizabeth Llewellyn before she made her debut uh, as Louisa Miller in English National Opera's new production. Uh, Now, I had a lovely long chat with Elizabeth, so if you'd like to listen to the full interview, we're going to release that as a separate podcast. Um, But here are some edited highlights of the conversation I had with Elizabeth a couple of weeks ago. Zooming out on your career a bit more, more broadly, one of the things that really kind of stands out for me is that you always seem to be learning and performing new roles you know there's, there seems to be sort of very few occasions where you're bringing back a, a, a role has this very much been a, a conscious choice no <laughs> you, you would love to do the same thing <laughs> i love to repeat something it's it's you know and you know i was talking a little bit about it with ella uh, earlier but um it's uh it, you in one sense you've you've you can only perform the things that you are offered you can only sing the contracts that you're given and confirmed. Um, and so uh, I guess early on, fairly early on, so around about sort of 2012, 2013, uh, my voice you know, started to change, sort of fill out, and a lot of uh, people I was singing to could probably hear that, um, and their instant sort of thought was oh Puccini because it has this round warm sort of quality what have you so I was offered a lot of Puccini and okay I wasn't offered um, uh, 
mini in La Fanchula del West, you know, so I, I, I wouldn't touch that with a barge pole. That's definitely dramatic soprano territory. But I was offered things that I, once I'd spoken to my singing teacher and my coach, that actually, yes, I, could, I can do these well without damaging my voice, without over-singing, and it would be really good for me in terms of my development. And uh, so I'm particularly thinking of after sort of 2013, it's like my first Amelia in Simon Bocanegra, I first sang my first bass at uh, Royal Danish, and then suddenly the Royal Danish, I did an audition while I was there because I said, look, Porgy and Bess isn't actually what I do. Uh, please, can I come and sing to you? Is uh, Sven Müller was the casting director at the time. I said, can we have an audition and what have you? And I sang a bit of Mimi and I sang a bit of Ernani and on the spot he offered me Suor Angelica. And he said, we'd really love you to sing Giorgetta in Il Tabarro. We're thinking of doing Tritico in a year and a half. And I said, oh, I don't really know Giorgetta. But he said... I can hear that you'd be great at Angelica. Uh, it's up to you whether you'd feel comfortable singing Giorgetta. Um, but if you can do both, that would be great because the original production, this was a revival, the original production was a, a, Damian, a Damiano Micheletto production where Giorgetta and Angelica are the same person. So... I stayed on stage at the end of Il Tabarro, after that big screen. Then the scene changed behind me and someone would come in, sit me down, cut my hair, take off my pretty dress, give me a nasty smock and then push me into a convent. And that's how Sword Angelica started. No rest for you in that production. So then. No, it's an hour and a half on stage, full on singing. Uh, again, it, it, it taught me stamina, taught me pacing. Um, 15 performances, you learn. Um, uh, and I also did Butterfly with them. So, you know, it, a, a year or so later. So it, it was, um, there was, it, it, at each stage, I was sort of speaking to the people who knew me best. And so, Do you think it's a good idea? Is it sort of overstepping? And, and the message I was getting back was actually, no, I think it would be a good thing for you to do. And, you know, the house knew me quite well. I knew them, had the same conductor for both productions, uh, a chap called Giuliano Carella, who's an incredible musician, absolutely top-class, um, with a big heart, and he, he, he mentored me, really, through my first butterfly. Um, and, yeah, so it, it, so none of these things were dangerous, Um but it was interesting that at the time I did this auditions for Sven and he offered me Tritico, he said, I can, I can hear you singing Tosca one day. And I said, don't be silly, to his face. And I suddenly thought, oh, does that mean I haven't got the job? Um, but, you know, it, at the, he, he said that back in 2013. And then I sang, weirdly enough, a few years later, my first Tosca. So, you know, it was, it was interesting that people often heard, well before I did, various qualities in my voice that would, in particular situations, suit, uh, suit my voice uh, uh, along the way. Now, I've read before that you've said that earlier on in your career, when you were starting out after retraining, you were offered a number of smaller roles which you which you turned down mm. um 
which has obviously worked out very well for you in the in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think you ever kind of burnt any bridges by, I suppose, being more more selective than perhaps some companies might have thought you should be at, at that stage in your career? It's a good question, but it's impossible to know because singers are never at in in that room at that decision making stage, that discussion stage, um, and. Uh, being a soprano as well, uh, you know, started off being a fairly sort of box standard, if you like, lyric soprano. Um, you know, there are there are a lot of us about, and so you know, if if a company m- missed out or if you opted not to go for one opportunity, there are lots of other sopranos that and of different timbres and different skill sets that they can choose to do that thing or the next thing or the thing after that and so you know it, it's it, it the the way of the world in that people are always looking for the next new thing or the next exciting thing or you know and so there's always a sort of a feeling of of uh companies always on the lookout for um you know some sort of nugget of of novelty um uh, and so they're always going to be moving on and sort of looking out for something else and so yeah it it, it's impossible to to know really um uh all all i can say is that it's really important to me to be true to myself and and polite be polite in the refusal um, and say thank you, thank you very much for, for thinking of me, and be sincere in that because they didn't have to think of you. Well, I think it's, it's wonderful for younger singers to see as well that you know someone like yourself who is who is having an extraordinary career doing doing leading roles in big stages is, mm. is still thinking about developing new roles and is still sort of taking time to work kind of work through things and yeah. you know it's I think it's quite an encouraging thing for people to be able to see that it's really that openness Im- that you put yeah it's really important I think uh, someone remarked oh I put something on Twitter I did an audition in in France recently in between performances and and uh, and uh, it was a lovely theatre had an incredible sort of interior and I took some photographs while I was waiting and uh, someone in a response to that tweet had said you still do auditions I was like well doesn't everybody even you know someone that I admire hugely we, we met up in Zurich because I was doing another audition there at Brindley Sherratt and he was talking about when he had to do an audition for the Royal Opera House and I said the same you do auditions yeah. and I think we just know, assume that you sort of sit there and wait wait for these wonderful offers yes, to come in and it you know. doesn't <laughs> always happen because they might not know you or know your voice um, they know your reputation and what have you, but sometimes casting directors just want to hear you in their auditorium. And, right. and you know, and, uh, but the flip side of that is that you have to, if, if you're not auditioning for a role, you need to have a bank of auditionarios to present. Now, I've literally had no time to even pick up my audition arias folder and work on anything in it. So the last few auditions generally that I've had, I've just said, you're gonna have to tell them, I'm just bringing what I'm working on now. Um, uh, So the audition I did for Aida, because it was just after I'd sung Elena and Margarita in Mephistopheles, 
I said, sorry, you're going to have to just hear those arias because I, have, I haven't got time to even work up the audition, the AIDA arias. Um, uh, you know, and so it, 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 it's, um, that's one of the things I'd really, once this season is over, I'd really like to spend some time doing is just reassessing uh, perhaps what uh, um, uh, casting directors, you know, the conversations that I've had this season and last season with casting directors and conductors has just made me think, <coughs> excuse me, I need to go almost go back to the drawing board and pick different mm. audition arias. Um, I, I've discovered recently that perhaps bringing Arabella to an audition is not a good idea because for a pianist it's really hard and if you don't know the opera to pick it up from nowhere and to play it um, is, is actually very difficult and quite stressful and, and, and you then, know, then you're stressed and, and then, then I'm uh, stressed and then the audition panel thinking what's going on over there and so you know as much as I would love to present Arabella and as much as I can sing that aria really well perhaps that's not the best aria to bring to an audition so I have to think well what else can I bring that you know and so there's a there's a lot of rethinking for me, that will need to happen with regard to my audition uh, repertoire and just working on it because because literally this season I've gone... I had a few weeks in between Mephistophele and the start of Manole School. did Manole School from uh, April to uh, end of June. I had a few weeks before then I jumped on a plane to go and do Beth at the Met. I came back. I had four, less than 48 hours between landing from the States and uh, starting rehearsals for AIDA in Germany. And then uh, we had our last performance of AIDA on the 27th of December. Our first rehearsal for Louisa Miller was the 2nd of January. So that's been my year. Um, there is no space in that for learning new arias um, and doing it well. And I think at this stage, the stage I'm at, um, I, my auditions, I've learned the hard way, my auditions have to be as good as they possibly can be and much more reflective of my uh, stage performances, uh, present and future. Um, and so uh, that, but that needs time and that takes work and that needs polishing. And, and I, I need to not be doing something else mm. in order to focus on those things. So, um, but it's exciting because I think my audition rep will be really interesting, really good. Um, and, uh, uh, this season has taught me a great deal about what my voice can do. Mm. Um, particularly Louisa Miller, that I hadn't expected um, to be singing something like this. Uh, I've not sung any bel canto before, and so to to be singing Louisa Miller and be enjoying it and finding it easy, in inverted commas, um, is is quite a revelation, and it's opened up other possibilities of, of repertoire I could do in the future. Um, I've long wanted to sing Strauss. I, I was very fortunate back in whenever it was, 2012, 2013, I had um, a, a, a coaching session with Zoila Isakowski 
on Act One of uh, Der Rosenkavalier. A Marshallin, I was going to say. I could say we see that. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, that's a real dream role of mine. Partly because you know I'm 46 now. But don't make a secret of it. I don't look at my age, which is great. Um, but you know, she she says some very profound things about the the passing of time and about the passing of time and how a, a woman feels that passing of time. And especially as she had to, uh, that, that uh, role had to, uh, it, the Marshallin uh, makes a decision almost like a, it's almost maternal, uh, that she says, look, you know, I'm going to be the adult here. I'm going to call time on our relationship. You need to find someone else young, more like your age. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, but she has this enormous reflection on the passing of time and going around the house sort of stopping clocks. I mean, not to say that I've done that. I really haven't. Um, but I understand in my 40s and, and, you know, the things that my body is going through uh, at, at, at in my age group and, and will go through, you understand how profound that is. Um, and, you know, saying goodbye to a certain part of your life and having to accept that actually from now on your life can be lots of things, but it won't be those things anymore. And that's quite profound. And I'd really love, in that sense, I'd really love to sing Marshallin because I really deeply, personally understand what that feels like. So thank you very much to Elizabeth and to English National Opera for arranging the interview. Um, Louisa Miller has now opened. Elizabeth has received excellent reviews. The production has not. Um, Emma Black, a frequent contributor to this podcast, and John Andrews, uh, who we had on as a guest a few months ago, both were there at opening night. Um, they both mentioned there was notable booing in the audience at, oh, at the production. That's rare. It, it is quite... It's, it's... Unless it's Don Giovanni. Also, they? it's not okay. Like, that's... <laughs> like, that is a very old-fashioned response to yeah. I have paid a ticket and I have not I do not agree with what has happened in front of you paid yeah, we've, <laughs> we've rarely seen in the, in the UK had some experience yeah. be that good or bad it should have made you think about some stuff don't boo the people that have just worked their backsides off yeah to I think I, w- I would <laughs> I would struggle to to boo anybody yeah. Yeah. unless I felt like they were uh, not respecting the audience, which I'm sure is not what people yeah, say. Yeah, people yeah. weren't trying. Yeah, yeah, they just came on and, you know, oh, I'll sing an aria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I've had shows like that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like to say. <laughs> uh, so congratulations, Elizabeth, and um, sorry, Ian O. Hope, you know, good luck for the future. Um, they've been around long enough, they'll be fine. Now, the Times newspaper have recently run the stats on the public subsidy per audience member for the UK's opera companies. Very funding heavy this month. I feel as though the news, news items often come in bunches. Yeah. Uh, this, is where we, this is where we are this month. Um, so that subsidy they've been looking at, that's the amount of public money that organisations receive per audience member that they reach. So Opera North, for example, received £108 from the public purse per audience member reached. That compares to English National Opera's £97. The Royal Opera House was £34 per audience member, but somewhere like the National Theatre, uh, for context, was just £12 received from the public per audience member. Now, Chris, this is a very interesting metric. Is yes. it useful? I, well, first of all, I would dispute the term audience member because this is just these statistics only include one type of audience member, which is 
you know, the people that buy tickets, which, okay, you might say that's the main audience, but it doesn't include, for example, the 27 million people who went to see operas in the cinema that we were talking about. Obviously, that wasn't all last year. Um, but, you know, there are lots of people that, that interact with companies and that are in the audience for these companies in other ways. Yeah, Radio 3 broadcasts exactly. or And they're provision. still being reached. I mean, what yes, is the definition exactly. of reach? Yes. They're not, you know, it's... And, and it also doesn't take into account education projects and outreach yeah. that, that these companies um, do a great deal of. Um, but what's interesting about the statistics is it, it seems to show that the more total funding um, a company has, the greater the value the sort of value for money you get in the, the lower the number was of funding per ticket. Um, so I think on the on the table that was released, Birmingham Opera was had the lowest overall funding and the highest overall funding per ticket. Um, whereas I think it was the, the Royal Opera House were the other way around. They had the highest overall funding and the lowest funding per ticket. So it seems to suggest that the more funding you put in, the more value you get out, which mm. I think we'd all say, well, yeah, duh. Yeah, but we know <laughs> that from the inside. But yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah, true, true to some extent. I mean, I think something, you know, the bigger the house, the more funding you get, naturally, the more audience members yes. you get, but also yeah. the more power generally you will have to create your own income through fundraising, through commercial events. You know, the Opera House, I think now is about 25% of their income is public subsidy, mm. sort of 25-ish percent, I think, is fundraising income, which is still about £25 million pounds a year. It's very massive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then £50 million comes from, from ticket sales and, and all sorts of other things. Um I think you're quite right there, Chris. One of the big things that people have said about this, which I completely agree with, is that, yes, bums on seats is one thing, but mm. it doesn't take into account what it, yeah, what is the work you're doing in the community? What is that education work that, that, that you're doing? Um, the other thing it doesn't take into account, that, yes, it's quite easy for someone at the Royal Opera House to receive lots of money and get lots of audiences because it's the prestige yes. heritage brand. Yeah. If you are Opera North and you're serving a, a huge geographic area with opera, you know, you are the provision for a lot of people in this in this area um, and again it goes back to the big things about what do we value as a society if yeah. hopefully people will keep valuing opera as something to have in society <laughs> but we have to be realistic with your artist programs as I said again yeah. as to how much these things cost mm. yeah. they are it, it's expensive it's a very expensive art form um, there are ways of cutting those costs which you know some people decide to go one way down that and some people you know by not paying people and another <laughs> another option for that is to do kind of smaller operas that involve fewer instrumentalists fewer singers fewer um, you know less set recycling props and <laughs> costumes all of these things are ways of cutting costs but it's an expensive art form and especially when you tour, which is, you know, the whole point of taking opera to people involves touring. Mm. Touring, to, you know... I was going to say, uh, the Royal Opera House doesn't tour. So right, so that's another big thing, you know, get because getting, money. you know, 60, 70, 80 instrumentalists, 40, 50 singers and all of the set and all of the whatever mm. to kind of Nottingham for a week, as, as we might do, is expensive. Especially um, for... Is it five performances normally that Opera North does on tour? It's a very yeah, small five, number of five, performances. Yeah, yeah. In total yeah, across the shows. But yeah. the, you know, the big, in, the each, big, in each location. The, the, the big question yeah. is, and I, you know, I don't know whether it's, it's going to go like this, but whether actually the Arts Council, the government and whatnot are going to be willing to, to fund this. Is, is these sorts of figures enough to justify five shows in Nottingham? Is, is it enough to justify this sort of level of output? I mean, that's the question I have. And that's, you know, as someone that... That really likes opera we've got to be really hard on these figures and then you know these don't tell the whole story no but they are a way of starting to, to start a conversation as to actually are we 
is this investment working? It's difficult because, you know, opera has a long, long history and a lot of that is, is philanthropic, right? A lot of opera was kind of paid for by the rich people, to be watched by the rich people, kind mm. of. Although there are there's plenty of, you know, counterexamples to that kind of model, I, I recognise. But is it just a thing that is really struggling with the translation into a into a modern kind of capitalist world and, and kind of where money wants to be spent on other things and actually the overall cost of opera hasn't managed to go down and the overall cost of everything else has gone up are we are we not happy with spending this much money on something that's not tangible anymore because we're a kind of results driven economy or you know there's there's huge questions to to be asked and it's really Again, it's out of the comfort zone. You've got to have these really huge conversations about whether opera is even serving the society in the way it used to. Mm. There will be people that will tell you till they're blue in the face about the Im- amount of positive impact it has and things like residencies in schools. And, yeah. you know, the statistics are there. The question is, are people happy with them? You mm. know, is this even a question people want to be answering anymore? Or, or you know, has... Society moved on and left opera behind to a certain extent. You know, there's a really big, huge questions that, that people seem very scared to ask because <laughs> I don't think people don't really well, want to find want out to the answer them. and, and yeah. confront the questions. Yeah. You know, and, and again, you know, a lot of opera, as we said, is, is still reliant on the Arts Council. Not all, but, but a lot is. Um, to... That was another thing. Of course, the statistics didn't include opera companies that don't receive funding. And so it's an incomplete picture. Just mm. obviously they don't because it was about the funding. Yeah. But it just, you know, it is an incomplete picture. Yeah. But 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 obviously if you don't receive public funding, then your public subsidy per head is zero. Yeah. So mm. so they could be on so, the table. So yeah. in, in a in a more sort of economics capitalist sort of driven society, you mm. could say the model for opera is Glyndebourne. Mm. Yeah. Where people pay hundreds and thousands of pounds to be even able to get a ticket, mm. uh, and maybe that you know, uh, if you ask someone like Bill Banks Jones, um, the, the artist director of Tete Tete, he'll say that in in his slightly dysphemistic vision, opera in you know fifty years' time is purely summer festivals. Mm. You know that's what it is. English National Opera. Um, I think the statistic is they let out the Colosseum for musicals the same amount of time they put on operas. Yeah, and that's it was, it's longer this coming season. I think it's it? they're doing. Yeah. Is it, is it um, hairspray? Yeah, yeah, and they're doing it for longer than the total of their wow. opera yeah. season. And that's a company having to. That's a company working at how to survive in this climate. Yeah. And the big question is, as a society, do we want to pay for them to not have to do that? Do we want yeah. to pay for people to be able to sing who aren't, you know, are we willing to do that? It becomes a question about welfare, almost. Like, is it if it's a state-funded thing, it should be benefiting the people in some way, right? That's that's the, the basic concept behind anything state-funded. So the problem is, with, with the arts and how that impacts people, is it's just not, it's not easy to get quantitative data out of that um people are trying and they're getting better at it but it's not it's not easy to say you know well this person went to an opera um which completely changed their view on a certain sociological phenomenon which had impacts down the line you know it's it that that kind of stuff is you can't grapple with that yeah because because i think what is really concerning if you look at something like opera north you know if you want to say here's my evidence base for why it's working you're probably showing a lot of what happens in education and outreach. Yes. Yeah. So as a funder, do you go, okay, right, well, stop all your main stage stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah. and just it's do that programme? Mm. Because if that's what your evidence base is, then but why are we paying all of this to do? And we do feel that. We feel that switch within um, within the industry. There is a there is a huge switch to that. I remember having a conversation with, with a singer who'd kind of been in the industry for a long time and was kind of really struggling with this change and being like well it's all about the education these days almost kind of begrudgingly 
And I get where they're coming from because that's not been their experience of the industry. But perhaps those of us that are 10, 20 years behind them and also those of us that are, you know, 10 years behind me just coming out of college now, you know, it is much more about the education and outreach stuff. Is that because that's where the industry is going or is that because it's easier to get the quantitative data to justify the expenditure? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of everything, I think. Yeah. And if we talk about Glyndebourne being the model for, you know, capitalist uh, opera um, in, a, in a strange way. <laughs> that should be the sub Glyndebourne, the capitalist's opera house. <laughs> the model for capitalism. Yeah. Well, I just sort of think... Um, I, I, you know, I don't know the statistics on, on the kind of audience breakdown at Glyndebourne compared to other opera houses, yeah. but I would guess that... It's a less diverse audience. It's a less diverse audience. Yeah. So, you know, if we were to say, if we, if we were to make that decision and say, well, no more, no more um, public funding for opera, Glyndebourne can do it, so everyone can do it. Well, okay then, we're just shutting out, we're shutting the door on the vast majority of the audience yep. by doing that. Then you're, saying, then you're saying very, very difficult, problematic sentences. We know that the benefits that engaging with the arts gives people. And then what we're basically saying is only rich, white, middle yep. class people get to have those benefits. And that's... Well, well, well that's why these these kind of diversity statistics may be a- annoying, but we, we, we have to have that focus on them yeah. because this is how we're going to have to try and yep. build an evidence base. Because that's it. the future. If Glyndebourne is the, the, the capitalist <laughs> opera model, sorry, Glyndebourne, you do very we lovely love, things. Yeah, we love Glyndebourne. Absolutely love Glyndebourne. <laughs> it's just, it's a different model. But it's a, yeah. it is a model and there are companies like you say and that receive are, no public funding. Yeah. I've worked for some of them and they their sole existence is to just kind of perform opera in rich people's gardens and get paid very handsomely for it yeah. and we're just kind of the incidental entertainment at somebody's 21st birthday party or something. There's, there's a lot of that around mm. and that will continue in as much as the philanthropic money will continue like it will just be there at some point in the future it'll it might die out when old money gradually starts kind of dwindling but it's that it's that kind of going okay well that can't be it because we can't limit the benefit that art brings mm. to people to a particular you know section of society it's not really morally defensible i don't yeah. think mm. this is a really Huge, interesting, and true. But it, we have we have to we have to confront we, yes, it. Yeah. Um, next next month, our main interview will be with Wasfi Carney, the artistic director of Grange Park Opera, another one of these companies which takes no subsidy. So capitalist I look, model. Of opera. <laughs> so I look forward to talking to Wasfi about a lot of these um, subjects when I meet with her uh, for next month's podcast. We've had the sad news this month of the death of Mirella Frenny. Uh, Frenny, who was eighty four, was born in Modena and made her debut as Michaela in Carmen. She appeared at Glyndebourne in 1960 as Zelina opposite Joan Sutherland's Donna Anna and made her debut at Covent Garden in Falstaff in 1961. Over the next 40 years or so, she was one of the greatest sopranos appearing in stages around the world. Her final role came in The Maid of Orleans at Washington Opera. Now here's a little bit of Marilla Frenny in action.
Now to finish off with a few news items, um, Phyllis Brissenden sadly died on the 17th of December. Um, a, a very quiet lady living in a house worth $240,000. Um, however, she left a fortune of $93 million behind her, bequesting St. Louis Opera $45 million in her will. Um, I say a very quiet lady. Um, no one had any idea she had this amount of money. Um, it was believed Under to be... her mattress, was it? Yeah. Well, it was believed to be solely drawn from investments left over by her parents. She had one job in her entire life that she didn't do for very long. Great. Um, Just a small loan from her parents. Yeah. Yeah, and she ended up leaving St. Louis up for $45 million. Um, Lauren, if you had $93 million, would you give half of it to an opera company? I won't make your name which one, but... Is that what, do you do? Um, gosh, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? I have always thought I probably wouldn't necessarily be an opera company. I'd probably plough it into, you know, I'd probably auction my house as a parliament dress and pay it to the Girl Guides instead. But, you know, it's something like that, isn't it? I mean, they, it's a lovely move. You can just imagine the, the family sitting around, though, in a fully kind of Janny Skeeky setup. Yes, being like, yes. Oh, <laughs> this, not this, the opera St. Louis company. Next, next production of Janny Skeeky yeah. could be around Phyllis oh Brissenden's bed. <laughs> So beautiful. They're handed to them on a plate, that one. <laughs> well, I think I think it's doubled their endowment. Again, looking at economic models for opera, I'm not going to go into this, but America is a very interesting place to look at. You know, very limited state subsidy. Yeah. It's all about the fundraising. Yeah. Um, and I know that the Arts Council would like to see arts organisations in, in the UK turn to a bit more of that sort of model, which people are sort of trying to do, but it's not easy. Um, but look, we're not going to talk anymore about money <laughs> this month. Money, money, money. Exactly. Um, that's a complete lie, though, because my final agenda item, <laughs> um, Opera Australia. Um, they offer 10 walk-on roles in hmm. LabOM every year uh, for 5000 Australian dollars a pop. Uh, if you've got 5000 Australian dollars, you can walk on stage, spend 15 minutes... Um, in uh, Café Mamouse, presumably. Yeah, precisely, yeah. in, in LabOM. Um, the director of the current production said, we've had a few over-enthusiastic opera buffs start singing uh, mid-solo on stage, so we need to be clear, if you're coming, you just need to listen to those people around you and, and behave. It's, yeah, it's specifically said during the solos, which I was. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if you're on stage, you got caught up in the chorus moment, but they're presumably singing along to Pando yeah, Menvo, and, yeah, yeah, you know... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> You're not going to stop them, though. You know, we've been I, in shows where we've gone, yes, director, we will do that until you've left the building on the second night, and then we will revert. So, you know, they're not going to stop them. What are they going to do? Rugby tackle them to the ground? <laughs> and I've been at shows where the entire audience has been singing along yeah, with a exactly. well-known number, and the conductor's put in an extra long pause, yeah. and you just hear the whole audience groaning the in the gap. Grindle, yeah. Lorna, as a, as a chorister, is, is it worth it? Oh, gosh. Is the thrill... <laughs> Would you, would you pay $5,000 Australian? Would I pay $5,000 Australian dollars to, to sit in Café Mamouse? I don't know, maybe the wine's really good. Uh, I think they got it, didn't it say they got a hot dog? Uh, okay. Really? Yeah. They, well, we do have actual food when we do Boheme. There's a lot of actual it, food That was it, there. it said real food, fake wine. Real that food, fake wine. Well, yeah. you can't drink wine in a safety critical area, so... Ah, well, there you go. It's very sensible. <laughs> I think that it, sort of. I think it's lovely. I've, I've heard of similar things before. A friend of mine was in a... A production of Eugene Onyegin with a Russian opera company at the Anvil in Basingstoke because they needed some you know bodies on the stage yeah. for the big ball scene and they couldn't afford to bring that many chorus on tour with them and so he he saw this advert and he applied and said yes I'd like to go on stage in a nice suit and sort of dance around and he mouthed along because he knew he knew the music so he mouthed along pretending he was singing and someone in the audience he knew afterwards came up to him and said have you got a new job <laughs> singing in opera choruses well look let's not even have 
qualified singers yeah, pay no, to be in shows. Let's get just random people to pay. That's... There is a really interesting question here, though, about what the crossover is between these kind of opportunities and the kind of pay to sing young yeah. artist programs. It's like, where is the line? Well, I think it's it's fine. This example is fine because they're just a body on the stage. They don't do anything. They're not getting an acting credit. They're not getting a singing credit. Yeah. They're just one of the people. They're set dressing. Exactly. Which is how, what and, my job is 50% yeah. of the time. And, you know, you could <laughs> you could say we're doing a production of L'Enfer um, les um, Sortilèges and we need trees in the garden. So we're going to offer people the chance to pay to be, to be dressed as a tree and come and hold the branches. Um, and yeah, hey, look, a, it's a fundraising stream. Exactly. Isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> I think it's harmless because I, I, it don't. I don't think it's taking opportunities away away from, from anyone else. Yeah. So now to the opera that you can see on radio, film, online this month. Agrippina from the Metropolitan Opera is coming to cinema screens on the 29th of February and they're flying Dutchman from the 14th of March, which was due to star Bryn Terfel. Um, however, he's had a bit of a, a nasty injury. Um, so there'll be no Bryn in flying Dutchman, but a, a good production, I'm sure, nonetheless. The Royal Opera House's Fidelia will be coming up on the 17th of March. That's Kaufman, Davidson and Papano, all-star cast um, on stage and in the pit for that one. On radio, there's the usual mix of weird and wonderful stuff on Radio 3. Uh, the one I picked out coming up this month is Ethel Smythe's Fate Gallant. Um, so something a little bit out of the ordinary there to, uh, to have a listen to, but lots of things on Radio 3. And online on the Opera Vision website, uh, this Friday, Opera North's Turn of the Screw live from Leeds. Um, also next month from La Monet in Belgium, they've got Don Giovanni, Cosipan Tutti and The Marriage of Figaro. So for those Mozart nuts of you out there, you can see all three of those productions from La Monet next month on Opera Vision. And before we turn our attentions to the opera quiz, it's time for our Hidden Gem Opera. Now this month's Hidden Gem takes its inspiration from a new project by Northern Opera Group. The Leeds Opera Story is a research project uncovering over 250 years of opera history in Leeds, exploring the operas, companies and artists that have contributed to the development of opera in the city. It's going to culminate in an exhibition and website held alongside the Leeds Opera Festival this summer between the 24th of August and 7th of September. So in honour of the Leeds opera story, I've chosen Thomas Arne's Thomas and Sally, which is one of the most popular operas of the 18th century and one that was first performed in Leeds in 1767. The opera premiered at Covent Garden in 1760, enjoying early popularity. It made its Broadway debut in 1938 and was one of the first operas to appear on television, appearing on the BBC in 1937. Now it's a rather silly story um, about Thomas and Sally who are madly in love. Thomas has to go away to sea on a voyage, however, and when he's away, the evil squire decides to try and have his way with Sally, but to no avail. It's one of those pieces you hardly see anymore, but it's got some very nice music in there by Thomas Arne, who you may know better as the composer of The Mask of Alfred and its headline tune, Rule Britannia. Here's a little bit of Thomas and Sally. Life's a garden rich in treasure Buried like the seeds in earth There lie joy, contentment, pleasure But tis love must bring them forth That fair son it's in denying We know her And to finish as ever with the opera cast quiz 
Now, I mentioned last month that we've been waiting to do this particular quiz <laughs> where we've got two panellists in the room at the same time and we finally have it, so, so I'm delighted. Um, this is inspired a suggestion by our producer, Louise, um, and it's inspired by a particular board game, which I won't um, mention for copyright purposes. In front of you both, you have a, a series of cards. Don't turn them over. Okay. Uh, we're gonna go, uh, we'll go Chris first, then Lorna. You've okay. got 45 seconds. You need to turn over the cards. On there are a series of opera terms. Could be the name of an opera, could be something to do with opera. You have to describe that to the person opposite you. Um, and every time they get one correct, the person describing gets a point. Oh, yeah. uh, describing person you can you can pass okay. one. Yeah. So <laughs> don't sabotage the other person. You can pass one. You can pass one okay. card if you don't like it. Okay, but no sabotaging. So no if sabotaging. I'm like, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> that's not okay. Precisely. Fine. Um, so listeners, you can play along at home. Um, 45 seconds. Each. So it's like Chris gets 45 seconds and then we reset and I get 45 yeah. seconds. Right, we're not swapping. Okay, I'm no. there. Okay, I'm ready. so Lorna, you're listening. Yeah. Chris, you're ready to describe. You can pass one card. <laughs> Your 45 seconds start now. Uh, this is the book with all the words in it. Libretto? Yeah. Uh, you uh, use these to see the stage from a long way away. Um, binoculars. binoculars. Yeah, oh, you just said that. No, not oh, binoculars. Not binoculars. The, um, when you go to see... Sight glasses, I don't know. What are you... Yeah, but when you go to see the, the play where people sing, they're called <laughs> opera glasses. Yes, uh, the person who accompanies rehearsals. Repetiteur. Um The aria from um, Turandot. Um, uh, Nessun Dorma. Um, it's the style of um, opera that Donizetti wrote. Bel Canto. Um, the rehearsal with the orchestra. Sits forever. Um, um, <laughs> pass oh, it. Pass, pass. it. Um, when you sing in a speaky way. Um, uh, recitative. Stop! Oh, Parlando. Parlando. You're, oh. you're a good guesser. I'm not going to get as many as you. <laughs> it depends how I describe them, though, doesn't it? <laughs> I passed on Mad Scene, because I know that's uh, a reference to a specific, specific opera. There's a I couple. So, um, yeah, Lucia is probably Lucia the main is one. Lucia the main yeah. one, or Lucretia has a Mad Scene um, as well, doesn't it? Sorry, those are the ones I got. I, I think I counted them right. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six. Didn't quite get Parlando. Oh, yeah. We're so nearly there. I, I, I snuck it into the pile. That was very so good the describing, though. <laughs> They're very good describing, though. I Chris, this is on film. We will... Uh... <laughs> we will check how many you snuck into the answer pile. Um, Lorna. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm poised. Three, two, one. Um, famous Italian soprano. Famously sang a little bit sharp. Uh, <laughs> Come on, Chris. Did, like, Mimi? Did she do Mimi? I think she did Mimi. Uh, no, I'm, okay, we're going to pass no, that one. No, sorry. Um, oh, these are hard. Um, um, oh my gosh. Okay, so an opera company. Sorry, uh, that's a good start. Um, from way back when. They don't exist anymore. They did a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan, I think. Oh, Savoy? No. Uh, it's, a, um, it's got like a um, French sounding... Uh, oh. This is going very well. <laughs> Ah, Doily Cart. Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, the Royal Opera House is at Covent Garden. Um, the three of them in the Ring Cycle. The Norns. Other ones. The Ryan Maiden. Wow. Oh, Maria so Callas. Sorry. Oh, sorry. She did. It was her that sang I did. sharp, wasn't it? If you look at videos on Opera Talk, there's a whole like stream of why Maria Callas was sharp. Yeah. Oh my word, they're so funny these yeah. videos. Um, so I'm sorry, Lorna. I mean. 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was necessarily all Chris's fault, um, but you scored a, a total of two points. What? Because I can't think what Doily Cart was. I was like, what did they do? Gilbert and Sullivan, I think. But unfortunately, not being able to guess Maria Callas. Unfortunately, you, you had to pass Maria Callas. I know. I mean, that's you know, I shouldn't have had to because I would have passed the other one. Then, it's because I should have just said it in my head. I was going, was she Italian? And I didn't. Let's want go to again. Say. Let's go again. That was fun. You've got a whole pile left in front of you. So if you want to describe a few more for yeah, fun, yeah. you can. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to give the win to Chris. Well done, I Chris. think Lorna wins for her guessing, to be honest, because I, I lost, I failed to guess. What we've that gained was, uh, here is that you describing and me guessing is the winning combination. Is the team. So uh, and if you'd like your own set of OperaCast cards, uh, $9.99 in purchase packaging, <laughs> we'll, we'll get them out to you. Um, congratulations uh, to, to both of you. Well thanks, done. Thanks very much. Fun new game. I likes it. Um, so thank you very much to Lorna James. Thank you thank very much. Thank you to Chris Pelly. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Coming up in a few days' time, we've got our OperaCast Extra, a day in the rehearsal room at the Royal Opera House. Next month, OperaCast Extra, we're at behind the scenes at the Glyndebourne Opera Cup, as well as our regular programme with an exclusive interview with Waspy Carney. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>